Hey, good morning. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors of City Light, and it's so much fun to be back in the chapel. Um, this is where, so City Light's a little over two years old, and this is where we originally planted the churches in this building. And so just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you came, not even core team, but just in this building, if you used to come to Sunday morning church here. Cool. Isn't this fun? This is like the good old days. Raise your hands if this is your first ever Sunday gathering in this building. Welcome to the chapel. Don't tell them down there, this is the varsity service, okay? <laughs> they think like, oh, those good-hearted people went up there to the old chapel to save room for us. No, no, you are at the varsity gathering. Don't tell them I said that, but it's true. Uh, okay, what are we going to do? Let's preach the Bible. I just uh, preached on a 40-foot runway with a guy with a man bun leading worship and a banjo. And so... Now I'm in a 108-year-old plaster church building. A city light, you just never know what you're going to get. It's always an adventure. But here's the saying that we can always count on. Every Sunday, we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to learn about Jesus. Amen? Same thing every week. So would you please open your Bibles? And I'm so happy to say there are Bibles in the pew backs. It's been a year or so since I've been able to say that. Grab a Bible. And uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 this morning. I want to preach a sermon titled, Jesus Heals the Humble and Humbles the Hypocrites. Jesus Heals the Humble and Humbles the Hypocrites. That's right, we're going hard after the religious guys today. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so let me set the stage really quick for Jesus Heals the Humble and Humbles the Hypocrites. Um, for four chapters now, um, we've been kind of following Jesus and his disciples on this journey. Remember that Jesus lived, primarily ministered and taught up in the uh, region of Galilee, a collection of small cities in the northern region of Israel. And he's been traveling for several weeks now down to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately go to the cross, the ultimate culmination of his reason coming to the earth, where he would die to forgive our sins. And uh, this is a several week long journey as he and his disciples are traveling. And it's an event filled journey, okay? Um, keep in mind, Luke is 24 chapters long. Ten of these 24 chapters chronicle the events of this journey from Galilee down to um, Jerusalem. And so from chapter 9 until chapter 19, they're just on their way. They're on their way to the city. And so half of the book of Luke almost is, is chronicling this journey. Lots of different things happen. They run across demon-possessed people, lots of teachable moments, several miracles along the way. And this morning, we're going to kind of zoom into a scene on this journey where Jesus, on a Sabbath, goes into the synagogue, their church service, and he heals a woman of an affirmity that she's had for 18 years. And uh, it's an incredible scene. I sat next to Steve. When we heard it read, we both kind of went, amen, he healed this woman. And then we both kind of went, ugh, in the next verse, when we hear about a religious man who had a problem with it. Uh, this is a passage that still today just frustrates me. My blood pressure goes up when I read about it because you hear the toxic nature of legalistic religion that was both prevalent in Jesus's day and our own, which was equally damaging to the people of God them at, then as it is in our day now. And so let me sit the stage really quick. I'm going to preach a little bit of a longer introduction. Hang with me. It's going to be kind of theologically heavy, but it's going to set the stage and set the groundwork for when we pick up the narrative. And then we're going to go right through the text. But let me kind of unpack the theological backdrop to what's going on here. The reason why the religious leader gets so upset in this passage is because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath gets its origins in Genesis chapter 1, wherein God creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he 
rests. And then he tells his people, this is to be a pattern and a prototype for the way that you should live. You should labor for six days and on the seventh, take a nap. Take a day off, right? He reinforces this in Exodus chapter 20 when he gives us the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so God has given us um, his law, his commandments. Included in that is this very good commandment. We're to not work all day, every day, all year long. We'll kill ourselves. This is a gift from God. Now, let me speak to this. Here's where I need to lay a little theological foundation. Um, Where... The religious Pharisees and the religious legalists in Jesus' day and in ours miss the point, starts with the law. So that's why we use this term legalist. That's a legal term. It has to do with the law. It has to do with God's law. Now, we need to be able to answer the question, why did God give us the law? As we read the Bible, it's full of do's and don'ts from Old Testament to New Testament, Right? In the Old Testament, the five books of the Bible are called the law. There's 612 unique commandments in that section. Uh, They're summarized in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Uh, But it continues on through the New Testament. There's all kinds of uh, do this, don't do that. Now we need to understand why did God give us the do's and the don'ts? Why did he give us the law? Well, the church historically has affirmed what scripture says and that the law is for really three primary reasons. Let me give you two that I think will be helpful for today. Galatians and Romans both affirm that the law is given to us to show us our sin and our need for a savior. John Calvin called it, the first use of the law, he said it's like a mirror. We should look into the do's and don'ts, right? And we should say, wait a second, I can't do all of that. I'm going to need some grace. And it exposes our own hearts and exposes our own sin. So let's just take a, a quick case study. Let's use the mirror for a second. Just think about the Ten Commandments. Just think about a few of them. You shall have no other gods, no graven image. Um, You shall not lie, don't steal, don't covet. You should remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, You should not commit adultery. You should obey mom and dad, right? Think about it for a second. Um, Have you ever committed yourself to anything other than or more than God? Have you ever shaded the truth, even in the slightest way, and told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything, even as little as an idea or an MP3 file, Or for some of you, a car. Uh, We'll pray for you in that. Uh, Chris does jail ministry. Uh, He would meet you down there. Um, Have any of you disobeyed your parents in the slightest way? Uh, Your entire life, have you always preserved a 12 or 24-hour window in which you did no work, none whatsoever, no homework, no mowing, no uh, lawn care, no house cleaning? Raise your hand if you've batted a 1,000 in keeping God's commands. Not a lot of hands. If a hand went up, we would worship you as Messiah. It would mean you're God. Because only God can keep that standard, right? You see how the law exposes, oh, this is God's standard? I don't meet it. And what it should do, it should chauffeur us to the gospel, which says, guess what? Jesus came and he maintained perfect law obedience and he did it in our place, right? And he went to the cross to die to cancel the debt of our sin when we trust him in faith. Our law disobedience is credited to him. He cancels it on the cross. His law obedience is credited to us. We receive the love and favor of God. See how that works? That's the gospel. The law, first purpose of the law, is to show us our sin and our need for a savior. Um, Another use, well, and here's where religious legalists get it wrong. I'll say this. They kind of look into the mirror of God's law, and they say, I look pretty good, don't I? Like these laws, I like these laws, and... And I think I can keep these laws, right? 
I think I'm really good at keeping these laws, and I think I'm going to keep all of these laws. And what they tend to do is they tend to build this whole facade of their life to maintain a good moral reputation, and they'll oftentimes do it at the expense of other people. Because if I can put you down and judge you and condemn you, it makes me look morally superior, and it helps me at least imagine that I've earned and been um, the rightful recipients of God's favor because of my obedience. Do you see how religion misses it? They look at the law and they think, I can do that. And they become uptight, proud, rigid, and rude. They just get mean. It's where you get weird things like this passage. Where did that come from? Religion. Uh, This guy thought that he was good. He had kept the Sabbath his whole life, right? How dare Jesus break his rules? Um, And I I just want to affirm and recognize some of you maybe grew up in a culture like this, a very legalistic, a very rigid culture. And I just want to affirm it's not a very fun culture, is it? Does it feel like a birthday party every day where you put a hat on and say, let's rejoice in Jesus? No, it's like you better eat guilt for breakfast, live in fear all day, and spend your free time judging other people, right? That's, that's the job description of a religious legalist. A lot of people live in that world. So the first purpose of the law is should show us our sin, not our moral perfection. Uh, another purpose of the law is it's really a gift to God's people. It really shows us how should life ought to be lived in the kingdom of God. What things should be true about us? And we affirm, based on the mirror, we can't keep it perfectly. It should usher us to Christ. But as children of God, as the Spirit of God enables us, more and more he enables us to generally live out these things to be true. When we stray, we rely on grace, we come back to Jesus and trust in him. But more and more we should live lives that are congruent with Scripture. And what that means is it it really produces a life that honors God and is for our good and joy, right? The law is a loving father's rules for us. So this is easy for me to understand. I'm a father. If you guys are parents, you understand this. I have rules for my kids, but they're intended to bless them, not to burden them. You see the difference? Um, So I don't let my kids run in the street. They wear a helmet when they ride their bikes, and I encourage them to eat all of their dinner, or at least a few more bites than they think they need to eat when it's healthy. That's for their good, right? That's the heart of a loving father towards my children, and that's God's loving heart towards us. It says, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, tell the truth, take a day off, honor and worship God alone, and it's for God's glory, and it's for your joy. But what religious people will do, will take God's laws, which are a blessing, and they'll impose their own rules and sub-point restrictions and impose them as burdens. What was intended to be a blessing becomes a burden. And they don't do it for God's glory and your joy, they do it for their control, coercion, and manipulation. Right? We see this with siblings as well. Think about little kids. I have three kids. And I'm not going to pick on my oldest son. All of you who are older siblings did the same thing. Okay, So this is true of all oldest kids. Um, which is what Grady will do with our loving laws, which are good for our kids. Oftentimes at the dinner table, Vivian, our middle daughter, will ask, can I be done? And before I can get a word in, my oldest son will insert, you need to eat three more bites. And if you don't, you're going to be in timeout. <laughs> okay. For him, is that for her good and my joy? No. What's that for? His manipulation and control. You see how that works? That's religious legalism. We take God's laws, which are a good thing, like take a day off, and religious legalists will use them to manipulate and control other people. The way the Old Testament rabbis regulated the Sabbath is they inserted 39 additional rules of prohibited uh, methods of labor on the Sabbath. 
So God says, take the day off. And the rabbis said, um, well, God, you know, he, 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 he forgot a few things. Let us help God out and impose 39 additional rules for what rest means, right? Can I just take a nap? Well, is it a permissible kind of map? <laughs> I don't know. See, they take a burden or a blessing and take, make it a burden. A day of rest becomes a day of stress. And it's not about God's glory and your good. It's about a religious person's control and manipulation and their own feelings of moral superiority. And that, City Light, is what we see in our text today. Um, this story still makes me mad, even today. It's just ridiculous. We see a story of Jesus going to church on a Saturday, heals a lady who's been bent over for 18 years, and we see a religious idiot get mad at her because he has broken his rule. Isn't that absurd? I think this is in here to just show us the absolute absurdity and how toxic religious legalism can really be in our lives. And so City Light, as I preach this this morning, I want to be careful because I don't want to just make fun of those old religious bigots, you know, or that other organization over there that's religious, guess what? I I think God has this for us that we might examine our own church culture and our own hearts. Amen? Um, I realize we preach against religion quite a bit, but guess why? I think we're amazingly susceptible to it. Of everyone in our city, who's the most likely to have a proclivity towards legalism like this? It's us. It's me. I'm the pastor. I'm the ruler in the synagogue. You guys are the faithful people that came to church this morning, right? And if you were to examine these religious leaders throughout the New Testament, their lives would look remarkably similar to ours. These were good citizens. They weren't in and out of jail. They weren't, you know, um, selling dime bags to kids after school in the parking lot. They, they weren't um, cooking meth in their basement. These are church-going people who pay their taxes and pay their tithes and serve on a local uh, church Sunday morning and lead a Bible study, right? But things got sideways. Things got goofy when it became less about God and his grace and it became more about them and their goodness. Do you see that? And so I want to press this in as a warning and just invite God, like God... Help us to sit under this text and examine our own hearts and jettison any, any hint of religiosity among us and, and grip us solely by your grace. And so, City Light, that's who we are, sinners saved by grace. Amen? That's it. That's our ministry. That's our message. So let's hit this in two points this morning. I want to get us into the verses now that we kind of understand the framework. And I want to hit it in two points. Point number one, Jesus heals the humble. Point number two, Jesus humbles the hypocrite. And so point one, Jesus heals the humble. Let's get into it in verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So Jesus is coming through town, probably a small town. He's a guest preacher in their pulpit, invited to come and preach from the Old Testament. Verse 11, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus, well, let's stop right there. I want to invite you to Put yourself in this woman's shoes for just a second. For 18 years, she's had a disabling spirit that's caused her to be bent over at the waist and she couldn't stand up straight. Think about that. 18 years. I want to invite you, take your age, subtract 18. Imagine that since that time, um, your view of the world has been the ground. For the better part of two decades, you haven't been able to give or receive a hug from another human being. For the better part of two decades, you haven't been able to look someone eye to eye and have a genuine adult interaction. You rarely see smiles, you mostly see dirt. You don't see the beautiful clouds and the sun, uh, you see dirt and grass. 
Think about the chronic pain that she must have felt to be hunched over for 18 years. It's unlikely she's had a good night rest in 18 years. That's this woman. She's lived a very hard life. It's been a very difficult life. She probably had some dreams, goals, aspirations as a little girl, maybe to be a mommy, maybe to pursue some different things. And all of that has been tabled and put on hold because a disabling spirit for 18 years has her hunched over. That's her life. Now, I want to point out real quick, verse 11 says that the cause of her ailment was a disabling spirit. I want to remind us that we are physical and spiritual beings. Amen? Remember that? We talked about that in chapter 1. And so sometimes if we're sick, if we have an ailment, it's purely physically caused. It's nothing to do with our sin. There's no demon living under our bed. We're just sick. Sometimes we get a cold. Sometimes we have a bad back, right? That just happens. Sometimes, however, our physical ailments can be spiritually caused. We believe that to be true. Um, Now, I want to point something out. Um, Do you remember the vocation of Luke, our author in this text? What is he? He's a physician. He's a medical doctor. And so is Luke pro-doctors, pro-medicine, pro-physical therapy, pro-medical treatment and therapy? Yes, he is. He is. He's been a personal doctor to many people, uh, many of the apostles. He, he believes in medicine. And guess what? So do, like, so do we. So do we. When we're sick, we're pro-doctors. We're pro-medicine. We're pro-medical treatment. And we thank God for that. Some of you are doctors, nurses, uh, technicians, physical therapists, dentists of various kinds. And we thank God for you. Your gift to the people of God to help keep us healthy. Um, but did Luke also believe in praying that God, the great physician, would heal? He did. In City Light, so do we. When we're sick, we pray for God to heal us. Sometimes there's spiritual causes for our ailments. Sometimes it's physical causes. And so what do we do as a church? We treat the whole body. We pray, Heavenly Father, would you heal me? Whatever the cause, would you heal me? Additionally, we go to the doctors. And we say, God, would you use the doctor to heal me too? (laughs) I'm all about that grace. That would be a good song. I'm all about that healing. And... uh, I'll take it however you choose to dispense it. Heal me through the doctors. Heal me miraculously. We are physical and spiritual creatures. For this lady, it was a spiritual cause. And for 18 years, despite the best medical treatment, or maybe no medical treatment, she's been unable to stand erect for the majority of her life. And it's Saturday. This lady's still faithful, still goes to church, still believes in God, though maybe and likely she's lost all hope. And she wanders into the synagogue on this Saturday And her whole life is literally about to be changed. Now let's pick up in verse 12. It says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And how long? Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. I love these two verses. What a picture of grace. What does this woman say to Jesus? Nothing. What does she do to get his attention? Nothing. Who's the initiating party in this picture? Jesus. He sees this woman. He has compassion on her. She may not even be able to see to move towards Jesus. She's completely unable to help herself. And guess what? Jesus moves towards her. Isn't that a picture of grace? Jesus moves towards us. We don't even know what we need and Jesus moves towards us. That's a picture of grace. And it says in verse uh, 12, that he, or verse 13, that he lays his hands on her. Remember, that would have been very taboo in this culture for a man to touch a woman in this way, especially not his spouse, out in public. But guess what? Jesus isn't concerned with being taboo or politically correct or incorrect. What's he concerned about? This woman. 
He sees her pain, and he wants to touch her to know, I identify and recognize your physical pain and suffering, and I care for you. He's concerned about this woman. And with one touch and with one word, he heals her. The power of God, as it always does, comes through the person of Jesus, and this woman is healed. It's an absolute miracle. With one word, for 18 years she's been over. That's over 6,000 consecutive days she's been bent over. One word, the power of God comes through the person of Jesus, and she is healed. And I love verse uh, 13. How does she respond? She glorified God. She glorified God. She said, hey, let's get Austin back there up on the stage. Let's get Man Bun back out in the banjo, right? Let's sing a chorus. You know what she didn't say? She didn't say, I'm awesome and got myself right. You should too. (laughs) What did she say? God is good. God is good. God is good. I glorify you, God. She glorified God when she was met by the grace of God. And that's the appropriate response to grace. And so uh, before we get into kind of the hairy, ugly part of this passage, I just want to appreciate a few things and press them in from this half, how God heals the humble. Number one, um, can I just hit maybe an obvious application for us out of this? It's not theologically deep. It's very simple. But I want you to notice um, this woman was, had an ailment for 18 years. And I realize that there might be some people in the room. You don't have to like stretch too hard to imagine what that might feel like. Some of you live with chronic back pain. Some of you can identify directly with her, right? Maybe your back has hurt for a long time. Maybe you have other kinds of chronic pain. Maybe it's been in your shoulders for years. Maybe it's been in your back or in your neck. Maybe you for a long time have had relational pain. Some people that you haven't talked to since you were a kid and the relational knot seems so tied up. Maybe it's financial stress. I feel like, man, we felt financial pain. I don't remember when the situation was better than it is. It feels like every month we're this close to losing the house, right? Um, Maybe it's psychological stress and there's some stuff up here that just leaves you restless. Whatever it is, maybe you can identify her with that. And I just want to press in the obvious and encourage you, City Light, to not lose heart. Don't lose heart. For this lady, it was 18 years of chronic pain. And when Jesus came, he had compassion and he healed her. And I just want to say, you might be in year three of your 18-year experience in the valley of pain. Or you might be just at the end of 17 right now and God's about to heal you this morning. I believe he still does. I'd love to pray for you if you have some pain. Let's invite Jesus to heal. He might do that. But I want you to know this great hope of the gospel, and that is God always heals his children. Sometimes it's now, sometimes it's later, and sometimes it's eternity. But if you are a child of God, there will be a day when that pain will end. Amen? And it might be on that last day. But I want you to know that this God we read about, this isn't just fiction. This isn't just ink on a page. This is a real God. If your faith is in Jesus, you're going to meet him someday. And if he doesn't heal you on this side of the grave, he's going to heal you on that side. You're going to see him face to face. You're going to feel the touch that this woman felt. And you're going to feel the pain go away just like she felt. And so I just want to encourage you, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Second thing, I just want to ask us to respond like this lady did. God showed her grace, and what did she do? She glorified God. Let me speak that into us. Would that be our testimony, City Light? Um, When I became a Christian, I wasn't running after God. I was running after a cute girl in a Bible study, okay? I didn't say, I need to be saved from my sins, so let me read the word of God, right? I said, she's cute, where's she going? Let me go there, and guess what? I was chasing her, but Jesus was chasing me, amen? 
And what I met was Jesus in the Bible, convicted of my sins. I see the person work of Jesus. The gospel light bulb goes off. God gives me faith. I believe. He adopts me into his family. And guess what that's called? Grace. He was pursuing me when I wasn't even pursuing him. And what's my response? I glorify God. Not look at my life. I'm a sweet Christian. No. As I was a selfish, idolatrous little nerd, and God just saved me by complete grace. And guess what? That's your story. That's your story. If you're a child of God, you're a child of God by grace and grace alone. He saved you. Um, Even if it was through a rocky patch in your marriage or a crisis, guess what? God let that happen to draw you to himself. That was his grace. Even if you had Christian moms and dads that prayed with you and you prayed to receive Jesus at age three, that's God's grace. That's God's grace. And so what is our response? We glorify God. We speak highly of God. And I just want to commit us to that publicly as a church, right? Have we not seen God do glorious things among us? Love to tell the stories. All started here in this building, and we see these amazing testimonies last week. A bunch of people got baptized. Hundreds of people have met the Lord. What's our only appropriate response? God is gracious. We glorify God. God has done this. It should never be about um, that core team was incredible, That one financial donor, man, he really got us over the edge to make some stuff happen. Those two preachers, they're really funny and engaging, you know. Uh, That part of the city, that was the ticket. No, 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 no. If we ever write a book that says, I'm awesome, fire me and leave this church, okay? If we write a book, guess what the title is? God is awesome. We glorify him. We speak highly of him. We celebrate him and we invite other people to know his grace, amen? God gives us grace, we give him glory. That's our story. That rhymed, I'm on a roll. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Point two, I hope that got recorded. Put that to a track in the background, that could be a good hip hop album. Point two is this, God heals the humble, or point two is this, God humbles the hypocrite. Okay, this is the less attractive side of the story, but it's important for us to hear, listen to this. Not everyone responded by glorifying God, did they? Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, that's the religious guy, that's the Bible teacher, that's the church goer, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Are you kidding me? Can we just take a minute and just recognize how stupid this is? Pardon my crass language, but I feel like that's the only appropriate response to this. We're supposed to go, that's dumb, right? That's stupid. Um, I could think of a lot of appropriate ways to respond to the miracle that that Jesus just did. Let's brainstorm some. We could throw him a parade, get some confetti cannons and fire trucks and a marching band and put him, that would be appropriate. We could kneel down and hail him as Christ and Lord and the great physician over all things. That would seem appropriate. Could write some songs for him and sing to him and wash his feet. That would work. We could at least give him a high five and say, man, thank you. She's been in my church for 20 years and she's been like this since I was a young preacher. And now she's like this. Good work. We could thank him. That would seem appropriate. We could give the lady a hug and say, sweetheart, I'm so glad you're healed. Been praying for you for decades. Jesus healed you. That's great. Any of these seem appropriate, don't they? Not this guy. What does he do? He gets mad. That's what indignant means. He's ticked off. Why? Because Jesus broke his rules. Are you kidding me? Notice that he doesn't even address Jesus directly. What's he do? Verse uh, 14 says that he gets the people together and he speaks directly to the people and he's going to lecture them. 
Okay, Jesus, go over there. Uh, just remember, guys, there's six days in which work can be done. And I have this list of 39 additional rules about the Sabbath. And like rule number 27 is that healing is forbidden. And so uh, if you want to get healed, please come back tomorrow. We're going to shut down the service today. Is that not dumb? I want you to notice what this guy is doing here. He's trying to keep him under his thumb, isn't he? He doesn't want to lose control. For this dude, his church isn't about God and his grace. It's about his rules and his control. And he's not about to give up control to this other long-haired Jesus Carpenter dude, right? Isn't that disgusting? Isn't it true that we can use God to gain control rather than use our influence and control to give glory to God? That's what's happening here. That's the heart of religion. What legalistic religion does is it replaces a relationship with God with a religious system of rules. It replaces compassion for people, which is the heart of this, for control and criticism over people, which is the heart of religion. And they're not close cousins. They're in every way antithetical. The gospel message that we read in here is in every way antithetical to the, to the systems and power of religion. Look at how Jesus responds to this guy. Verse 15. It says, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a Jewish lady in her own synagogue on the Sabbath, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Is Jesus excited and happy with this guy in this moment? No, he's floored. What does he call him? A hypocrite. That's not a compliment. If someone calls you a hypocrite, that is not a compliment. Jesus is angry. And by the way, is angry sometimes the appropriate and biblical emotional response to a situation? It is. It is. Sometimes we should be angry. And what Jesus got the most angry at is when men would use God and his people to garner and maintain control and reputation for themselves. It robs God of his glory and it wounds God's people and Jesus is furious. He says, you hypocrite. And then he just plays out the logic of stupid religion, right? He says, in your 39 um, little rules, you prohibit healing But in your rules for what is allowed, you allow that you would untie your ox and lead it to water. He's saying you're a hypocrite because on the Sabbath you treat your animals better than your people. And he uses a little wordplay here. Did you notice that? Picture you've got your ox tied to a post. You're going to untie it and lead it to water. He's saying here you've got a daughter of Abraham and Satan has bound her to an infirmity. She's bound up. She's tied up. She needs led to water. She needs some life. Her throat is dry and you don't care. But you would lead your oxen to water, but you would leave her bound up to a post of the devil rather than untie her. That's what religion does. It's toxic. It's absolutely toxic, and Jesus absolutely hates it. Jesus said it says that Jesus' adversaries were put to shame and the people rejoiced. And so out of this point, City Light, I just want to press in three things. Number one, I just very tenderheartedly and pastorally, if I could, just want to recognize. Some people in the room have been manipulated, controlled, and coerced by religious people in the name of God. Can I just recognize that? For some of you, it's not hard to imagine this setting either. Maybe you've been in a household with a religious dad who talked a lot about the Bible, had a big Bible that he kept at home, but you never once experienced love and grace from that man. 
Instead, you experience his control and coercion and manipulation. Maybe you've been in a church culture where they talked a lot about Jesus and a lot about grace, but that was the last thing you ever experienced there, right? Because somehow things got a little sideways and it was no longer about Jesus, but it was about one particular author, one particular leader, one particular pastor who surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men so that he could maintain and keep control and it was all about him. And you were the unfortunate victim of that situation. And I just want to recognize out of this text, I I want you to see that Jesus sees you, okay? You felt that pain. You've been under that control. You got dinged up by that. And I want you to see the heart of Jesus. His anger is for you. This is the way Christian leadership is supposed to work. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that Jesus is our chief shepherd. That means he is the lead pastor of his big C church. He is the number one leader. He is the number one author. He gets all the glory. He's the good shepherd that lovingly and courageously leads his people. Now, underneath Jesus are what we would call under shepherds. These are pastors, elders, deacons, city group leaders, Bible study leaders, community group leaders, the father in a home that's been entrusted to lead the family. And our job is, as a Christian leader, is to point you to the one leader. So my job every week is to not to teach you how to hear my voice and obey. That's not it. My job, if done correctly, is to teach you how to hear Jesus' voice and obey him. Right? My job is not to get you to submit and follow my leadership. It's to get you and submit to follow to Jesus' leadership. Do you see the difference? My job as a father is not to control my children and control my wife. It's to have the heart of our heavenly father and shepherd them towards him. How do you listen to the Holy Spirit? How do you hear from God? How do you obey his commands? How do you plead for mercy when you've blown it? How do we follow Jesus? That's what Christian leadership is supposed to be. So the role of Christian leadership isn't to use God to get influence. That's religion. The goal of Christian leadership is to use our influence to get people to God. You see the difference? He's the chief shepherd. He's the leader. He's the one that we want in control. And so the first thing I want to do is just recognize that this is not hypothetical for some people. And I want you to see the love of the Father for you. He sees you. He knows your pain. He knows how you've been dinged up. And he stands with you and against your oppressor. Okay? Number two, I also, as I said in the beginning, just want to see a warning in this passage. I know at City Light we preach against religion quite a bit. And I want you to know that's intentional. That's intentional. Here's why. As you read the pages of Luke, as we're doing now, or any of the Gospels, if you were to give this Bible to someone who had never read it and said, read Luke and tell me who the bad guy is. Who's the antagonist? Who's the primary antagonist in this book? Um, We would see, well, Jesus confronted demons and the devil at times. He confronted um, kind of rebellious, sinful people. But the primary antagonist... uh, just by sheer volume of verses given to it, just by sheer anger and Jesus' tone, who's he most upset with? It's the religious dudes. It's the people that control and manipulate other people for their own good and rob God of his glory and deny their own sin while pointing out everybody else's. That's who Jesus gets the most mad about. So the reason we preach about um, avoiding and jettisoning all flavor of religion in our church is because we realize we're very susceptible to it. We realize that this is... um, a big deal in the Bible, and it's a big deal, and it can be for us. And so I just want us to sit under this and say, man, Jesus, would you spare us from that? Would you spare us from that? Would it never be about us and our goodness? Would it always be about God and his grace? And so uh, the way we maintain that is City Light, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
have to get our identities right. Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. We're sinners. Jesus is gracious. We've missed it. Jesus nailed it. We're needy. Grace, people for grace. Jesus is generous to dispense it. That's our situation. That's our message and that's our ministry and that's what we proclaim. Amen? And then lastly, I just want to preach this in. Uh, Look again at verse 17. Look at the way the people responded. So Jesus did a great work. How did the people respond? It says, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Here's the deal. The key to to not responding religiously is to respond rejoicingly. The key to not responding religiously is to commit ourselves to responding rejoicingly, rejoicingly, if that's a word. At what? At all the gracious things that God has done. When we see that God's done a good work of grace, we what? We rejoice. We rejoice in that. We develop a heart posture of thankfulness. I was in need. Jesus, you delivered. We rejoice in you. I want you to know at City Light, by God's grace, we've been very intentional to create a culture of rejoicing. That's by design. Man, I want, when you go to a city group or you come on a Sunday morning, for you to feel a sense of warmth and worship and family and people that are for you and people that care for you and that will give you a high five and weep with you when you weep and celebrate with you when you celebrate. And I want it to be joyful. And I don't want it to be joyful just in a like we're happy evangelicals kind of way, like I trusted the Lord and everything's great now, right? Not in that sense. That's equally can be religious and toxic. But I just realize, even though life is not perfect and we need to grind it out with Jesus in the valleys, we have a lot of reasons to rejoice because he's given us a lot of grace. Amen? I was a hell-bent and a hell-bound sinner when Jesus came and saved me by his grace, and I will choose to rejoice. If you've been saved by Jesus, it was by nothing that you have done. He saved you in spite of yourself, and your response, rejoice. When we think about the baptisms that we saw last week and the stories that God has, is doing in our city and in our church, what do we do? We rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice about that. We, we fight for joy and we rejoice every week. Amen? So here's what I want to do. Quit looking at me all religious. Stand up. We're going to rejoice. Maybe you came in here thinking religion and rebellion were your only options. You thought it was run from God and live like the devil or get really religious, stiff, and weird and judge other people. And this morning, you heard the good news of the gospel, that they're both equally offensive to God, and he wants to save us by his grace. Would you just tell him that this morning? Jesus, I'm a sinner, and you're, you're my only hope. You came because I couldn't obey the law. Thank you for doing it for me and dying for me. And then would you rejoice in that as we clap and sing? Uh, maybe you just need to think about something small that God did for you this week. Did you know God cares about even the little things? Um, about your family, about your work, about your situation, about your back pain. Maybe some of you, you literally didn't think you were going to make it through the week. Maybe you thought, this week is horrible. I'm lucky if I can just survive to the weekend. And guess what? It's Sunday and you're in church and you made it. God's done a gracious work. Amen? Would we rejoice in that? Would we choose to focus on what God has done and rejoice in that? And so, Father, thank you for the great and gracious works that you have done. Would we just maintain a culture of rejoicing and celebrating the great work that you have done. God, if there's ever in any, any ounce of religion and religious tendencies in our heart, would you just take that from us? Would you keep us humble, like the disabled, demonized woman, bent over? Would we say, I wasn't even looking for Jesus, he saved me, and now I will glorify him? Would that be our testimony, a testimony of your grace and our joy? For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.